The Bible reading for today is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through to 11, but we're actually going to be taking it over two weeks. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. For they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've, um, that Bible reading we were covering over two weeks. Today is the second week. And so we're actually really going to be covering the second slide. In the lead up to 1975, uh, the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower Society had put out a bunch of statements that this was going to be 6,000 years from when they thought Adam was created, and thus, by their calculations, we'd be entering into a Sabbath of God. And then, with a lot of vague predictions and some not so vague, uh, many Jehovah's Witnesses became convinced that the end of the world was going to come in 1975. Now, when we were living in Dolby, which was years later, our minister at the time told us the story of what unfolded there locally. As the due date approached, some of the local Jehovah's Witnesses had a great big spend up. So they had this big spending spree, but they just put it all on their accounts at the local shops. They didn't actually pay for it because, hey, (laughs) we're not gonna need to pay for it. And then they went up to the Bunya Mountains to wait for Jesus to come. And you probably already know this, but Jesus didn't come in 1975 and the world didn't end in 1975. And so some of the other locals had a great old belly laugh as they watched these disappointed Jehovah's Witnesses descending the mountain back to the plane to come home and try and work out, how am I going to pay all my bills? And um, now that's just one of a very long line of failed predictions made by the Jehovah's Witnesses. But it makes you think, doesn't it? What would you do if you knew that that the end of the world and the return of Jesus and the day of judgment was gonna be, let's say, three months from today? What would you do if you knew? Well, maybe I should actually back it up a little bit. Do you believe 
that the end of all things is at hand. Some people believe this, others don't. And if you do believe that the end of all things is at hand, the world would categorise you as a crazy. Um, I actually said to Robin, with the topic today, we should get a sandwich board for you to wear. You know, the, the board each side of you says, the end of die, the end is nigh. You'd be categorised as a crazy if you believed that the end is near. And yet this, as Christians, this is what we must believe because this, this is what the scriptures consistently teach us. But I reckon it is just as well that God didn't tell us the day or the hour of Jesus' return. If he did, if we knew what the date was, if that date was a long way away, people just wouldn't care. Um, they'd put it, put, it, put it off. There'd be no pressing need to turn to God. There'd be no pressing need for evangelism right now because after all, it's another thousand years till Jesus returns. And likewise, if we knew the date and it was only a matter of days or months away, everything would just fall into rack and ruin as daily responsibilities would get neglected and, and, and our focus would all shift to the immediate self. And we'd look for self-gratification and self-preservation. And so I thank God that we don't know the hour or the day or the year or the month or the millennia for that matter. God's intent is that every man, woman and child will be going about their normal everyday business when Jesus all of a sudden unexpectedly arrives. Although it's not entirely unexpected. We know that he's coming. He's told us that he's coming. We just don't know when. And so the timing will be a surprise, not the event itself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's a lot in that, isn't there? 
And I'm not gonna, not going, we're not going to be studying that passage today. But I wanted to read that because, you know, as we've been doing this first letter of Peter, as we've been working our way through it, nearly every week, I, I draw our attention to something that Jesus has said and go, isn't, it is so evident that what Peter is teaching here is he is reflecting back to the time that he was with Jesus and Jesus gave teaching. And this is a case in point. And Jesus told parable after parable after parable, all with the message, be ready, be ready, be ready. But also incorporated into most of those parables was the concept that he was a long time coming. And so people stopped being ready. How did they stop being ready? By sinful living and by not continuing to serve and by not loving. And it's easy to lose our sense of vigilance. It's easy for us to lose our sense of readiness because it's been almost 2,000 years now that, that the church has been waiting for Jesus to return. And even in Peter's day, way back then, people were beginning to ask the question, is he ever going to come? Which is why in his second letter, Peter says, in those last days, there'll be scoffers who are saying, where's Jesus? Is he ever going to come? And he reminds them that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so but using God's timing, it's only a couple of days since Jesus told us to be ready. Right? So we know we have to be ready for the return of Jesus. We all know that, don't we? No arguments? Lots of noddings of heads. Good. But what does that look like? What does it look like being ready for Jesus to return? If you knew that the world was going to end in three months from today, how would you spend this coming week? Would your plans for this coming week be any different to your plans that you already have for this coming week? If you knew that Jesus was going to come, what would you do differently? Or maybe a similar question might be, if, if you were given a diagnosis by the doctor that you only had three months to live, how would you live your life differently? How would you spend the time that you still have health? Well, when it comes to the end of the world, and when it comes to the return of Jesus, in the church we'll find two opposite extremes. Many people don't give the thought of Jesus' return a second thought. They know that it's gonna happen. And when it does, well, that's okay because um, I've got my insurance policy in place. I said this in this prayer and I did it in plenty of time, so I'm all good to go. And that's their attitude. But the way they live, it, it's evident that they're not at all expecting Jesus anytime soon. Their concerns are, are almost entirely worldly. Their, their whole focus seems to be on self and their current life and, and saving up for what for them is going to be a glorious retirement. They like to feel that they're passionate about evangelism because well, none of us want to say that we're not passionate about evangelism. We're very keen for evangelism, but they're not personally sharing their faith. They're not weeping for the unsaved. They're not praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Come as soon as it can that the world is so corrupt. I'm, I so much want you to come, Jesus. Jesus. 
And they're not risking their own comfort and their own safety and with the possibility of persecution for the sake of Jesus. So that's one extreme. But then the other extreme are those Christians, well, that's all they ever want to talk about. The world's about to end. The world's about to end. It, it could be any day now. Oh, things are getting so bad. Look at this virus. It's a pestilence. It's the end of the world. Look at the, the worldwide political upheaval. It's on the news all the time at the moment. Jesus is coming. Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. And I reckon the first thing that we need to ask is whose hand? Well, it's God's hand. The end of all things is near in time and it's near spatially, it's near in locality, but near to what? It's near to God's timeline and it's near to God himself. The end of all things is not out of God's reach. If the end of all things was going to come with God pressing a button, I want you to picture God's finger resting on that button. It's ready to happen as soon as God says the word. Now, I'll tell you what, knowing our Heavenly Father as we do, doesn't that give us an enormous amount of comfort that it's in God's hands? The end of all things is entirely in God's timing and the end of all things is entirely in his control. Now, when I was going to school, um, the school kids were a bit worried and getting a bit wound up by the science teachers telling us what the scientists have been saying, that the climate's cooling and we're heading for the next ice age and we're all going to be frozen and our crops won't be able to grow and, and humanity as we know it won't survive. It'll be an extinction-level event. Can anyone remember when they used to predict that the next ice age is on its way? Yes, a few nods of the head. People my, my age and older remember that. Um, but apparently they've fixed that problem now uh, because now the scientists are telling us the world's getting hotter. We're in a climate emergency. The world's going to end and, and we have to take action now, otherwise it's going to be too late. Once again, when I was a child, and even more so probably for some of you who are a bit older than me, um, going to school, there, there were some children who were terrified that they wouldn't make adulthood. And of course, what they were afraid of was nuclear holocaust. Uh, the dreadful power of the atom bomb by the splitting of the atom had become a mere mechanism to set off an even more destructive force, the fusing of atoms in a fusion hydrogen bomb. All right, so let's put this into perspective. The bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima had the equivalent power of 18,000 tonnes of trinitrotoluene, also known as TNT. Right? So you call that an 18 kiloton bomb. Equivalent explosive force to 18,000 tonnes of TNT. That is enormous. And its destruction was catastrophic. Nagasaki was worse. It was a bigger bomb. Um, reflecting back to the, uh, to the very first nuclear detonation 
um, Oppenheimer um, said that, he, thinking back on it, he, he compared it to, I think it was a Hindu text that talked about being destroyer of worlds. But by mod modern terms, those bombs were tiny. The most powerful nuclear bomb ever tested, um, and by the way, they don't test them anymore, so who knows how big they are now. They don't test them anymore because the physics are that good and the computer simulators are that good. They know what they're going to do. But the biggest one that was ever actually detonated was done by the USSR in 1961. Its explosive force was the equivalent of 50 million tonnes of TNT. So it was 2,800 times the power of the Hiroshima bomb. The radius of total destruction, that's radius, not diameter, is 35 kilometres in every direction from the blast site. And you can understand when something like that happened that people around the world were terrified. Now, for the first time, they could believe that the end of the world was in the hands of men. And many people still hold that fear. I read the article, an article the other day of somebody who obviously hates Donald Trump and they're, they're pressing the panic button. Oh, now that he's lost the election, he's a real spoil sport. He's going to press the button. He's going to kill us all. Take a breath, folks. Take a breath. Doesn't it give you great comfort that the end of all things is not in the hands of Kim Jong-un? And it's not in the hands of Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump. The end of all things is not in the hands of Boris Johnson or Xi Jinping. I pronounced that wrong. And it's not going to be in the hands of Joe Biden. The end of all things is in God's hand. It's near. It could be any moment and we need to be ready. So we come back to that question. What would you do if you knew that the world was going to end in three months? And what would you do differently to today? Well, Peter tells us the right way to be ready. He gives us four instructions. The first is to do with our mind and the way that we think. At the prospect of the world ending, the human reaction of many folk is to panic and to be filled with fear. Now, We've seen panic and, and people filled with fear lately. It's not the end of the world just yet, but at least we don't think so. It hasn't been yet. But, but what a terrible indictment it has been on our nation, and it still is, with regards to the COVID pandemic. The panic buying that we saw. And, and some people, it was completely irrational. They filled their homes so full of toilet paper, of all things, for goodness sake, toilet paper flour, uh, canned goods, bottled water and stuff that they thought that they couldn't live without. And there are some people who so filled their homes with these things, there was no room left in the hallway to walk. Everything was just packed in. For some people, it was their fear that got them. It was just astonishing and yet completely unfounded. And then there was the social media pylons, if, if a family would dare to walk on a beach out in the open. 
We see panic again now in the United States at the moment on both sides of politics. We saw it in the lead up to the election. We saw it during the election. We're seeing it now. Completely irrational. Now, if it's like this now, what's it going to be like when the end of the world really does come? The fact that the end of all things is at hand is a time for Christians to shine. What should we do with our minds? Well, we should be the ones who are self-controlled and sober-minded. You ever notice that in the times of a national disaster, they often bring the military in? Do you know why that is? One of the reasons, because they've got cool toys that can do stuff. But I think probably one of the main reasons is because they are trained to be self-controlled and sober-minded and to go about their business despite what the mayhem is that's going on about them. And with the regard to the end of all things, it's the disciples of Jesus who should be demonstrating this sort of self-control and clear thinking. Yes, we will have a full awareness that the end is nigh. And we need to know that it's not a time for panic. It's not a time for losing control. It's not a time for losing our minds and it's not a time for losing our cool. The thing that has astonished me most in the last 12 months is the way that the global pandemic seems to have been a catalyst for a flood of craziness, even in the church. When a nameless person claims to have evidence of a conspiracy, millions believe it, and they stop thinking straight. And Christians feel, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all on board with this, and I'm gonna warn people all about these conspiracies because that's gonna make me a good Christian. And yet they don't realize that their actions are completely against God's word. The scriptures tell us, do not gossip. But that's exactly what spreading of conspiracy theories is, gossip. Some people trawl the internet looking for secret information, naming certain people who have secret agendas and, and now I know something that you don't and so I'm going to tell you about it. You know what we call that? Gossip. And so they email all their friends, did you know this? And we disobey God's word by gossiping. And the scriptures tell us to honour the authorities. We've, we've been, we learned this earlier in Peter's letters. Even when the church was being severely persecuted, the message was honour the authorities. They've been put there by God. And yet many Christians start disobeying the authorities because they know something secret. When God's word tells us, even when the authorities aren't good, unless they're instructing us to go against God's word, then we are to obey the authorities. The scriptures tell us in Isaiah chapter 8 not to call something a conspiracy that other people call a conspiracy, right? Other people will get scared about these things. It says, do not fear, do not dread. Honour God and fear God. And yet, good Christian people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them get all up in arms that we've got to do something to stop the government from controlling us. Or, or we, have to, we have to know who's really responsible for this virus. 
Or we have to stand against this, or we have to stand against that, and insert whatever concern you have there. Do you know what? When God does bring the end of the world, where in the Bible does it tell us that we have to stop it? It doesn't. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are told to pray for God's kingdom to come. But until then, because the end of all things is at hand, this is what we should be doing with our minds. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Other people, they can have their panic. Other people, they can have their conspiracies, but not us. You know why? Because we're not going to panic because we know who's really in control. And it's not some nameless person who happens to be a billionaire. The one who's really in control is God. And the second reason is because when we pray, we pray with a mind that is clear thinking. The second instruction is to do with relationships. If the world was about to end, what would you do with your relationships? Some folk would just write off all the people that, who are hard work. Um, yeah, I actually don't need to put too much work into you now. Um, I'll just disregard you because I'll just stick with the people that I enjoy. After all, it's only three months to go, whatever. But Peter says to keep loving one another earnestly. And he's specifically talking about loving one another in the church. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while and been coming to church for a while, you're probably very well aware that some Christians can rub other Christians the wrong way. And because of the nature of the church and, and because we're actually family in Christ and because of our closeness, we can't help but amplify this a bit, rubbing each other the wrong way because of our closeness, even though we have differences. And sometimes one Christian might do something that hurts or offends another. And the thing is, often the one who takes offence likes to wear it as a badge of, not a badge of honour, but a badge of self-righteousness, right? So this other person has offended me, um, so that puts me in the position of righteousness. And... They seem to think that the rest of the church should pamper them because they're the ones who've been offended. And some people seem to very easily take offence. You know what that tells me? If I am someone who is very easily offended and if I regularly get offended, that tells me that I don't know how to love. You see, when we love one another, when we love one another earnestly, that love covers a multitude of sins. All right? When we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and when we love them earnestly, that love overlooks the offences against us. It means that I have a readiness to forgive them because I love them. And so rather than take offence, overlook the offence and love that person. There are so many people 
who aren't fellowshipping in a church today, even in this town, because they believe that someone has sinned against them or a church has sinned against them and they've taken offence and they're holding on to that offence. Do you know what's really lacking? Love. And it's not only the person who's offended would generally think, yes, they don't love me. No, but you hear what Peter's saying here. What's lacking is love in you. If you love, you won't get offended and you'll be able to fellowship again with your brothers and sisters in Christ who you've cut yourself off from. Many people have the attitude, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yes, you do. Otherwise, how are you going to love the family of Jesus earnestly? How are you going to do that? The third direction is what we do with our homes. If you knew the end of the world was going to be in three months' time, or if you had three months to live, what would you do with your home? And what would you do with your family? For some, they might become very insular. Right, this is all about our family time now. This is, this is a private time for us. That The time's really short, and so we've got to look after ourselves, and we're just going to get together in our own little family unit. But you know what Peter says? He says, open your homes up. Invite others to come and share with you and your family. It's not a time for containing ourselves to our close-knit family units. This is a time to welcome strangers to our homes. And as the end of the world does draw near, it's not a time for hoarding. It's a time for sharing. Now, by the scriptures, we fully expect that before Jesus returns, Christians are gonna be persecuted even more severely. It'll come to the stage where because we won't worship the image of the beast, we won't even be able to, to won't even be allowed to buy and sell stuff. Now, can you imagine how empty your pantry's gonna be by then? We'll all be going visiting Ardre. Ardre, can we have a sheep? And <laughs> that'll be all we can eat. We'll be visiting Neil. Neil, shoot us a roo, will you? And ew, gonna be very hungry before we eat kangaroo. But but you know, even when it gets to that point. Even then, it's not a time for hoarding. It's a time for sharing. And it's a time for opening up our homes to visitors, to share meals with them, uh, to strangers, Christian strangers who, who have to flee where they are and they come to our own town. It's a time for us to open up our homes to them and to share with them what we do have, even if it's only a morsel. This is what genuine hospitality looks like. And let me tell you, genuine hospitality is something beautiful to see in a church. My hope is that whenever we have a visitor who comes to this church, that they would get invited to so many homes for lunch that, that they would leave this place going, wow, that's a church who truly love God because they love his family. And they want to get to know his family, even though they're strangers. You see, that's what hospitality is about. I get really sad if there's ever a visitor who comes to this church and they don't get invited home to somebody's place for lunch. My hope is that we would be hospitable 
some people have a spiritual gift of hospitality, um, but we should all be hospitable, even if we don't have that gift. Now, I've said to you before, and I'll say it again, I do hope that when you go on holidays, that you don't take a holiday from church. It is the most wonderful thing that when you're away, do your research, find a good church and visit that church and don't, don't leave straight afterwards. Hang about and get to know the people. Stick around and fellowship with people who are strangers and that yet they are your family in Christ. Do you know, when, when we, we do that all the time and when we find a good church and it usually ends up being the highlight of our holiday getting to know the people of that church. And the best part is when another family invites you home for lunch. Doesn't always happen. Um, and don't be offended if they don't invite you home for lunch, remember, let your love override that offence, overlook that offence. But give others the opportunity to show you hospitality. It's a delight. And the fourth instruction is what we do with our gifts. We all have at least one spiritual gift, or at least I believe that, and I'm confident that you can have a spiritual gift if you want one, and if you pray and ask God for a spiritual gift. Now, what are spiritual gifts? A spiritual gift is being able to serve God and serve others in ways that we can't do in our own strength. Sometimes I think we, we confuse our natural talents with spiritual gifts. Um, now, we cannot control what gift we are given. We can ask God, but it's up to God what gift he ultimately does give us. But we can control how we use that gift. And because the end of all things is at hand, we are to use the gifts that God has given us to serve one another. That's the purpose of the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gift that God has given you isn't for your own service. It isn't for your own sense of self-fulfillment. It's not even for your own spiritual growth. The spiritual gifts that God has given you is so you can serve others. And we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. We have varied gifts. And God designed the church in this way for this reason. I am deficient without you because I don't have the gifts that God has given you. And you are deficient without me because you don't have the gifts that God has given me. Some gifts are to do with speaking, like gifts of prophecy, preaching. I'm using the gift of teaching at the moment. And when I speak... It's not about glorifying me with my wonderful oratory skills because I don't have any. I've told you this in the past. I, when it comes to public speaking, I cannot do it. I could not do it. I never could. But God has given me a gift of being able to teach and explain his word. Hopefully it's working. Is it working okay? Oh, that's good. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. But you see, when I'm speaking... I'm not to be speaking my own words. I'm not to be sharing with you my own pet theories or my special hobby horses that I like to ride. And I'm not to be teaching you the latest sociological or 
philosophical teachings. We use the speech gifts to share the word of God. But then there's other gifts. There's gifts of service. Um, The practical gifts, if you like to call them that. Gifts of giving, healing, caring for the sick, hospitality, administration. All of these things, we don't do these things in our own strength. We do these things in God's strength. Yeah. Sometimes, well, actually, pretty much, I've discovered always, when God calls us to something, we'll have this crisis where we go, God, I can't do that. Well, that's the whole point. God doesn't want you to be able to do that. God wants to do it through you. He will give you the spiritual gift and the spiritual empowerment to help you to do what you know you cannot do. You know why? It's in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, if you know you can do something and you can go and do it, and even though you're doing it for God, who gets the glory? Oh, good job. You did well. But when you know that you can't do it and it's God that's doing it through you, it's God who gets the glory. Now, If you knew the world was going to end in three months' time, what would you do with your employment? And what would you do with your service in the church? Would you keep working or would you take a holiday? Where would you go? How good a holiday would that be if everybody else was also taking the holiday? You see, if you have a job, that work that God has given you is your calling. What about your ministry in the church? If you knew it was three months to go and Robin was doing up the roster for the next three months, is that, oh, you're doing up two months, aren't you, Robin? Okay, Robin's currently doing up the roster for the next two months. Would you ring up Robin and say, well, actually, Robin, we just thought we might take a bit of a break at the moment after it's only three months to go. Um, so we actually don't think we're gonna be working in the church. We're probably gonna have a bit of family time, have time out. What would you do? Do you remember what Jesus said in in that reading that we had right at the start? Blessed is the servant who, when his master returns, is serving in the way that he was directed. That was not exact words, but that was the gist of what he was saying. Because the end is near, it's not a time to stop serving. It's a time to be serving. And that's what glorifies God. I just want to share a word here to the elderly and to the retirees. I've noticed that there's two different types of retirees in the world. For some, they see their retirement as a time for travel and holidays and their ministry all but stops. But for others, all of a sudden, they, they, and actually they've probably planned this for years, I've now got even more time for serving Jesus. What do you think glorifies God the most? The end is near. Every one of us has a spiritual gift and we should be using the gifts that God has given us to glorify God. And I want to say, if you're just waiting to be asked, stop waiting to be asked and you do the asking. Come and talk to me or one of the elders or talk to Robin and say, 
I believe God has given me a gift. I just don't know what it is. Or maybe you do know what it is. But you don't know how to use it to serve God in his glory. Come and talk to us about it. And I'm sure we'll find a way for God to be using you to serve him. Right. I reckon we might leave it at that. Um, how to live with the short time that we have remaining is a topic that we could talk about for hours. And some of you are probably feeling, but you already have, Michael. Well, no, not really. Um, we could talk about this for ages because really what we're talking about is the whole Christian life. The fact that, that the time is short and we should be living knowing that the time is short, because of that, then we could work through the whole of the scriptures and go, this therefore is how we should live. The end of all things is nigh. Therefore, this is how we should live. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.